Good evening, and welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. That's 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackelford, your host of Bird Calls here at Red River Radio. I'm ready to answer your questions about birds tonight, so let's hear from you by calling us again at 800-552-8502. We start by recapping our conservation tip from last month, and we ended that episode last month with the tip of take your child or grandchild out of the country. And that's to broaden their horizons, broaden their worldview, give them a greater appreciation for life back home. They'll get to see different things, um, not just nature, but how different humans live in different parts of the world. Um, And so I don't just make, I don't make these out, I don't pull these out of the thin air. This was an important one in my life. And, uh, at age 16, when I, and let me back up. When I say take your child or grandchild out of, the, out of the country, that could include sending them, as was the case in, in my personal experience. Um, I had three years back-to-back, ages 16, then 17, then 18, where my parents sent me. Uh, and, you know, when you're 16, I've got a son at home. You, you don't necessarily want to be with your kids. Um, so at 16, I, I went to visit some family who bought a piece of property on the west end of the island of Eleuthera in the Bahamas. And you might think, oh, the Bahamas, hotels and resorts, uh-uh. It, 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 there were power outages. The water, the, the running water was out a lot. I, I, I was tasked with going walking down with a pail long way to get well water so we could flush toilets. You know, that wasn't something I'd experienced back in Texas. So it was a big experience. Uh, There was one tiny store. It it was a fraction of the size of our today's gas stations and convenience stores. So, you know, growing up in a big city, I I didn't know that that was possibility and, and, but it worked. I, you know, you, you, you make it work. And so that was a lot of fun. That was a town of current, by the way, if anybody knows the island of Eleuthera, there's nothing. And I mean, nothing on that West end of the island. Then at age 17, I had the great fortune to go to Peru with a a high school class. And I had a teacher who was one of my major influences in getting into birds and science and biology uh, Bob Lanier, who sadly passed away a, a little over a year ago, but he he took a s- group of students uh, down to Peru, and, and it was a naturalist trip and mostly focused on birding, and I got to go. I was 17. I, I mowed a lot of lawns ahead of time. Uh, my parents helped match uh, what I earned and got to go. And then at age 18, I was in college, and my first semester, uh, summer uh, I got to go on a trip to Costa Rica, which was a 
college course where I got college credit. We had to do f- several things uh, to get college credit. So those three were instrumental in my life. And then, of course, I'm doing the same thing with my kids. My wife and I, we, we took our kids in 2015, so they were about age 9 and 11. We took them to Honduras and, uh, and, and took them on a birding trip, and we stayed in an eco-lodge. And, and uh, it, it was just life-changing. These kinds of trips are life-changing. And, and we're going to meet our guest here in a minute, and he's, gonna, he's had similar experiences, and he's going to talk about that as well, how you know, going out of the country can really change your life in such a positive way. So our profile species is tonight is an acrobatic raptor called the Mississippi kite. Let's listen to their high-pitched two-note whistle here. Very high-pitched, two-note. This is a crow-sized raptor, not as husky as a crow, more sleek and slim, but it's crow size. It's mostly gray and black. The sexes are similar with some subtle differences, often difficult to observe as these birds often zip by hurriedly. This is the dark raptor we see in the sky above the treetops as it floats with ease in the sky and while foraging will fold its wings back as it dives quickly in hot pursuit of a tasty prey item. Their prey consists mainly of large insects like beetles, dragonflies, cicadas, grasshoppers, and more. And they've also been documented taking vertebrate vertebrate prey, including frogs, mice, small birds, and bats. This species is highly migratory. It returns to the U.S. each spring, over summers with us, then departs south in the fall. Southbound kites migrate long distances to overwinter roughly in the center of South America. With the clearing of large hardwoods in the U.S., this this species once saw a retraction in its range, but recently has reestablished itself in some former haunts. Elsewhere, like in the Great Plains, its range has seen an expansion as trees were planted in prairie country to serve as urban shade trees or as windbreaks or shelter belts in rural agricultural lands. A small percentage of nesting kites have been known to be protective parents near the nest site by swooping at people or pets that pass by, especially at golf courses and city parks. We shouldn't fault them for being good parents, so instead give them a little space. For the first time this summer, we had a nesting pair of kites in our backyard, which was unheard of just ten, uh, two decades ago where I live in Nacogdoches, and our pair never swooped at us. And instead, they were quite the opposite. They were very quiet and secretive during the nesting cycle. Once the young fledged, they were all very vocal, especially as the youngsters begged for food. To see a photo of a Mississippi kite in flight, snapped by James Childress, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. All right, tonight we're very, I'm very excited to have a longtime buddy on as a guest tonight. He, he's via Zoom, 
because he, he's in Ithaca, New York, long way from here, but he's, he's going to talk to us here in a minute. Um, his name is Cullen Hanks. He's a project manager at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in Ithaca, New York. Cullen grew up in Texas with a love for natural history and adventure. As a teenager, he connected with the birding community, which provided the framework that has defined his career. Cullen earned a BA in biology from Cornell University and a master's in Latin American studies from the University of Texas at Austin, where he researched the economics of the parrot trade and conservation. At the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Cullen manages several projects involving data collection and media curation. So again, Cullen lives in Ithaca, New York with his significant other, Ashley, and his two dogs. So Cullen, welcome to the show. Hey, Cliff, it's, it's nice to join you. Uh, well, I gotta first ask, uh, what's the weather like? You know, we've been cooking down here in the South and I have seen in the, on the news that, you know, the Northeast has been getting some hot days, but we've had weeks and weeks of it. So tell us, tell us a little bit, get, get us all excited about some cool weather. Do you have, are you experiencing any of that? <laughs> well, it's funny because right now everybody's complaining about the heat up here, <laughs> but the highs are only in the 80s. So <laughs> and, and sometimes a, I'm wondering, you know, when is it really going to get hot up here? Yeah. And as an original Texan, you're probably laughing that that 80 80 something degrees feels perfect so currently right now looking in the forecast um every day over the next 10 days is forecast to be in the 70s as a high oh man so i'm not complaining oh man we're I, i'm i'm happy for you because it's been triple digits for a lot of this summer and i don't remember one that's been this hot or this dry um so l- luckily i just got a text in the last little bit from my wife back home saying that we were getting a downpour, which is the first one we've had in five weeks at our place. But I know a lot of people have had it a lot worse. Okay, so Colin, tell us more about the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. A lot of our listeners probably never even knew there was a lab of ornithology. Of course, ornithology is a study of birds. So tell us, you know, a little bit about Cornell, like how many employees there are, some of the more popular programs, and how far do y'all reach out? And what's your association with the university there? Which, by the way, you got your bachelor's at. So must have been like a coming home to get your job that you're in. But, but anyway, go ahead and tell us about the Cornell Lab. <laughs> so the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is part of Cornell University. It sits within uh, um, one of the school's cows. And, but it's, it's kind of its, its own deal. It's a, it's a nonprofit. Um, which means it has its own board of directors and we raise our own funds and uh, um, it's its own organization. And so it's kind of has a, a, a really positive relationship with the university. Um, but we, we also have uh, um, our own kind of flexibility as an organization um, that allows us to do the work that we do. Um, it, we have about 250 employees Whoa! Um, and, Wait, say and, that. Say that again. Two hundred and fifty people working at a bird lab. Yes. Awesome. And you know, it's. I think one of the challenges is is you know we have so much going on. Like, how do we work together well? Um, because and we have these different centers, and um, 
Um, but some of our more popular programs are, um, you know, eBird, which I think many people have heard about, which has a global reach. Uh, Merlin, um, which is uh, you, um, hopefully hear more about later, um, is a is an application um, used to identify birds. And uh, Bird Academy, um, which is um, a program that allows people to to um, take courses related to birds online and learn about birds. Co college um, level courses. Well, there there are some, but the, um, um, a lot of them are just geared towards the public and people mm -hmm. interested in learning about birds. And so you can do anything, you know, um, from learning about bird photography to learning about nature illustration mm -hmm. to uh, um, just an introduction to the joy of birding. So for all ages, so your teen bird bird watcher could enjoy these classes if they're interested in birds. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Absolutely. And, uh, um, you know, some some uh, uh, um, universities do use some incorporate some of these uh, um, bird academy classes in different ways. Very cool. So tell us about your position and and exactly what do you do at the Cornell Lab? So my position is, um, as you said, a project manager, project leader. Um, I sit within the Macaulay Library which is a library of um, natural media. It used to be um, primarily sounds, bird sounds, which we have the longest legacy of, of archiving and uh, um, sounds of birds and other wildlife. But we also have photos and, and videos. Um, um, and what I do is uh, um, I work with uh, the eBird project um, and Merlin projects um, with partners around the world. And I also am involved in some other projects. Um, like there's a, actually, we actually have an app for fishermen in the Amazon uh, um, that I, I manage in collaboration with uh, Wildlife Conservation Society. But the bulk of my work is working with partners within eBird and Merlin. So we'll talk a little bit later about eBird and Merlin that you mentioned. Um, but I'm, I'm curious what you meant about helping anglers in South America. Tell, tell us more about what you were talking about. Well, this is part of an effort. You know, uh, um, we There's a, a new network, relatively new new network that we've been working uh, um, uh, or, or a part of called uh, Citizen Science in the Amazon. The, the goal of it is to set up a, a network um, of kind of support for citizen science, kind of bringing together partners um, from across the Amazon, which, as you know, uh, um, crosses many borders. Yeah, um, yeah. And we have partners in Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, uh, um, Brazil. And um, and one of the projects is called Ictio, which is um, um, similar to eBird. And we leverage some of the eBird infrastructure to allow artisanal fishermen um, to keep track of their catch and use that to document fish migration in the Amazon. Because something a lot of people don't know is that um, some species of fish in the Amazon will migrate thousands of kilometers every year. Wow. So like salmon do. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. So you're not just doing bird stuff. You're, you're doing fish as well. So that's pretty neat. Um, so Colin, well, let me, let me back up here. Um, I want to remind listeners that we're calling show. You don't have to call in, but if you've got a question for me or for Colin, 
The number here is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. I've got lots of questions for Colin. We could probably have a three, four-hour show because Colin and I used to work together and we go way back and this is a little bit of a reunion for us because uh, we haven't seen each other. Well, no, we ran into each other in High Island three months ago. Um, mm-hmm. Yep, and so that that's a neat place to run into you. But um, anyway, let's let's talk more about your background, Colin. What what got you started with birds, and was anyone else in your family a bird watcher? And if not, as a young birder, who influenced you the most, and how did they do that? Well, that's a there's a, quite a bit to unpack there. But um, you know, my grandparents they were probably what you call backyard birders, but they weren't really birders. And growing up, I didn't really have any exposure uh, initially to the kind of birding culture. And um, But what I did have is my family was really into um, um, hunting and fishing. So my father, he liked to hunt. My whole family liked to fish. And so we do road trips out west, um, fly fishing in the summer and um, and so I, you know, growing up, I spent a lot of time outdoors and that kind of really gave me a, uh, I'm triggered a, a strong interest, not just in nature, but in wildlife. And so, um, I think that growing up, I was always, you know, just really interested in wildlife. But when I was a teenager, that's when I connected to the birding community. And, um, you know, it started with, um, a friend of my father's who, Uh, encouraged me to go to this birding camp and then um, in high school I was really lucky enough to have a teacher who took the time to take me birding before I could drive Um, David Veselka he was my photography teacher and um, growing up in Houston he um, was willing to you know take me for a day of uh, um, birding down in, in in Galveston and and that really, you know, the, the, the birding camps and, and and spending time with David really introduced me to some of the basics of, you know, how to find birds, you know, the kind of culture of, of exploration that I think was really important. Awesome. So you mentioned birding camps, youth birding camps. Um, so tell us about those and, and, and who offers those. So I went to um, a camp in Arizona called Camp Chiricahua that is run by Victor Emanuel Nature Tours uh, um, or VENT. And basically, you know, Victor Emanuel Nature Tours is a company that leads birding tours all over the world. And um, in the 80s, um, Victor um, really saw the need for opportunities for young birders. And so he put together this camp uh, um, for young birders. And we, you know, was, I think it was 11 of us met out in Tucson and we went to the Chiricahua Mountains, which is a really interesting place for birds um, because it, you get all these species kind of coming up from Mexico. And um, it's a, it's, it's a, um, a great experience because, you know, as a young person interested in birds, I had, I didn't have many peers that were, had that kind of interest. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that had a really positive impact and, um, and were you, know, you for me. were you on the inaugural Camp Chiricahua, the very first? I one? think it was on the second or third, and maybe what, the second or third. What year was that? Ninety one. Ninety one. So the first one was maybe late eighties. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, because I I'm too old. Because uh, I'm I don't remember if eight or ten years older than you, but those camps came around. I was already in in college and well into college actually. So, yeah, what what an uh, opportunity that you had, and those camps are still going. And Vent's not the only one offering youth camps for young birders, young naturalists. Um, the American Birding Association also offers uh, a youth camp, and they have for, for many years. And I think they've probably both, Vent and ABA, have really gotten the the wrinkles out and f- have mastered these camps. So if any listener has a child or grandchild that's interested in nature with a you know specialty in birds, what a huge opportunity. And uh, so, Colin, c- continue about your, your experience at the well, birding camp. Yeah, I'll tell you uh, um, a funny story is that um, the first camp I went to, when I first got there, this was all new to me, kind of birding culture and, you know, was all new to me. I had never heard of a life list. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very in- interested in birds and and all wildlife, but I just didn't, hadn't, you know, been exposed to like the idea of a life list. And so when I got there, um, all these other campers were like, you know, what's your life list? And I was like, oh man, what what have I gotten myself into? Who are these people? You know? And I was like, I, I sh- this is a bad idea. <laughs> but by the end of it, I was, uh, um, you know, I called my father and I was like, dad, you know, um, this this is this camp has been amazing and not only that but there's another camp at the end of the summer that's going to mexico and there's only one space and we need to call right now because i really need to go (laughs) and i was lucky enough to have a a father that was really supportive of of this he he liked the idea so you you, you got to do two in one summer i got to do two in one summer and i'll tell you something special about the first one is that one of the people leading it was roger tory peterson all right, and and for listeners who aren't familiar with that name, he he very much pioneered the the field guide, the books that we know as field guides. He pioneered those with the first one for birds coming out in what called nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, something like yeah, that. yeah, something like that before World War Two. So very cool. So yeah, go on. Yeah. So. Um... Well, uh, yeah, Roger Troy Peterson, you know, he was in his 80s then, and all the other campers were scared to talk to him, I mean, because he's this, like, legend in birding, but I, um, maybe because I kind of was newer to it, I didn't have any fear, and I just ate lunch with him, you know, whenever we we uh, um, stopped, and so I just remember I had, I had the opportunity to hear him talking about seeing the ivory-billed woodpecker, and all of these kind of stories from the um, early 1900s, which were really fascinating and kind of um, provided a, just um, a personal connection to the past, which was really impactful to me as a teenager. Yeah. yeah, so that's, I'm trying to think what that would be like. You mentioned how everybody was in awe of Roger Torrey Pierce. And it'd be like a baseball camp and in walks Ted Williams or Babe Ruth um, or, or an acting summer camp and, and in walks Humphrey Bogart or, or you know, someone of that caliber. So that's that's who Roger Tory Peterson was to, to bird watchers. So, so very cool. So tell us about Mexico. Where did you go? The Mexico camp is. Uh, um, I feel really fortunate to have been able to do that. It was. It's. Um, 
the camp was called um, Camp Cielo, um, named after uh, um, El Cielo, um, a national park in the um, Sierra Madre Oriental. It's a mountain range in northeastern Mexico and in, in Tamaulipas um, that goes up to, to Tamaulipas. Um, and what was amazing, I think it was amazing for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, I literally drove there um, from my house in in uh, um, in Houston, and it was so different. Um, the birds were so different. The culture was so different. You talked about the impact that um, that living um, out of the country had on you. Well, this had a similar impact on me. Just just being in a rural part of Mexico and seeing just you know um, getting some exposure to how people live there, um, but also the birds. I mean, seeing. Um, parrots, um, macaws flying in the wild, something that, you know, for me, I, uh, um, parrots were something that just was a very foreign thing that, that I wanted to see and to see them flying in the wild, um, just a few hours away from Texas, just really kind of blew my mind and, and really opened my eyes to, to, uh, um, you know, the potential of what you could find and experience in Latin America. Mm-hmm. And so I'm guessing a lot of these kids that were on the camp with you, um, you all kept in touch and and probably still keep in touch today. Oh, it's funny because it's amazing how many people, how many of the campers on those camps um, ended up pursuing a career in ornithology in some way, either as a guide or as a professional ornithologist. Um, my boss went to those camps. Um, other people, you know, and multiple people that I work with at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, I first met through those camps. Awesome. Um, you know, some of my best friends I met on those camps, like um, Brian O'Shea, who now works at the um, Museum of Natural History in North Carolina um, and others. And so it's, you know, it's, re it's really interesting, you know, how many paths kind of went through those camps and keep on crossing. Yeah, that's neat. And that's neat that you can keep keep in touch. And, of course, social media has made it a lot easier than, than when you guys were in camp because that, that was before texting, long before texting and Facebook and others. So, so yeah, <laughs> that's before email. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So the kids that go to camp now, they have even greater opportunity to keep in touch uh, with each other. So, But that's neat that you're actually, you know, in person seeing a lot of these people. And like you said, they – they chose careers in the field that you you and I are in. So very cool. So, you know, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, um, while we're on this, I didn't want to uh, fail to mention, you know, uh, um, that, that the lab also has youth birder events. Um, and uh, we do a, a weekend every summer where we invite a group of young birders to come learn about the lab and, and gain exposure. We we do things like uh, um, um, training and sound recording, and um, have lectures by you know different people involved in in, in research. And uh, and so if if you know a young birder that's interested in, in something like that, um, check out um, check it out. But you know we I think that we all realized we all benefited from events like uh, um, the the birding camps and um, know how important they are. And so it's, it's definitely a good thing to support. Yeah, and we certainly didn't mention all of them. Uh, you know, there's 
they're all over the country. There's little camps here and there. There they might even be day camps like the Gulf Coast Bird Observatory out of Lake Jackson, Texas offers a a camp for young naturalists and it's a day camp type thing. So so if people have a kid or grandkid that's interested, look for something that's uh, close to you. You might be near a, um, a park or, or a refuge or something else that, that might offer a camp for kids. Um, and and uh, the one that Cullen went to was an away camp where you're there for, what, 10 or 12 days probably, Cullen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So very cool. So, I, you know, I'm thinking of a camp. I'm thinking that you're – you're sitting around the campfire, and you've got a camp leader, camp camp counselor that's that's quizzing you all. And I'm guessing he's he's he or she's asking you these kinds of quiz questions, like, uh, and you can answer these, Colin. These are for you. Uh, what kind of birds stick together? <laughs> Velcros. Is, is that's not what you guys did around the campfire? <laughs> no. Um, how about yeah i think that there's some there's certainly a lot of fun to had you know i I certainly don't don't remember any jokes of that caliber cliff okay well here's another one what what do you call the second bird that's been eaten by the same cat it's called an after dinner tweet (laughs) so i think i would make a really good camp counselor what do you think with my jokes here i've got a couple more (laughs) <laughs> are you ready okay this is a technical one why do seagulls fly over the sea the answer is because if they flew over the bay then they'd be bagels <laughs> okay that's enough eye rolling i'm sorry so don't go to the camp that i'm working at right it's for weird weird kids because the counselor's weird all right, uh, let's change gears, Kermit. I'm sorry, Cullen. Uh, Kermit's right here in the studio looking at me, and uh, we, we actually, before I ask a question, we've got uh, we've got our first caller. So let's go with Scott from Gardner, Louisiana. Scott, you're on the air with Cliff and Cullen. Go ahead. Hey, how y'all doing today? We're doing well, thank you. Good deal. I got a question. I was watching a, a video a documentary called Gulf. Gulf Crossing is an essay on bird migration by Jackson Childs, which y'all may be familiar with, maybe have seen it. Um, and it maybe, yeah, how about you, Colin? Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. I haven't. Well, it's, it's a really neat, uh, you know, it, you, can, you can find it on YouTube uh, also. And uh, it's, it's a really uh, a neat video. Okay, and what? tell us again what it's called, Gulf Crossings? Gulf Crossing, an okay. essay on migration. It's by Jackson Childs. Okay. And they had a segment in there, uh, and he was uh, talking about, and in, in the bird in particular in this segment was the uh, blue-winged warbler. Mm-hmm. About how they, in, in mid-July, when they, the young fledged the nest, the parents would take each a, a portion of the brood and go, and go out foraging uh, um, to, you know, I guess teaching the young about uh, about how to catch food, you know, mm-hmm. how, to, how to feed themselves. And then after a few weeks of this, the uh, the adults would leave and head out on their migration, leaving the young to fend for themselves, and that the young would uh, 
basically be on their own, uh, and they would migrate without ever having done this, being yeah. only about two months old, and would go to uh, south, upper South America, northern South America, or wherever you know, wherever they would uh, their their wintering uh, grounds were. And I was just wondering if that typical of uh, all the neotropical migrants, or just in the between warblers case, or it, it's because it's, it's specified. Yeah, it's typical of m- most birds. You know, some exceptions are the whooping cranes. They usually travel in family groups, you know, mom, dad, and junior, for example. But the warblers, the shorebirds, and the shorebirds fly, you know, even much greater distances. And the same thing as what you mentioned, Scott, the adults, they, they leave. And, and the kids are supposed to figure it out. And the beauty is they're hardwired to do it. They're hardwired knowing where to go and how to do it and to get out of uh, the breeding grounds in Alaska if you're a Hudsonian godwit and get out of there before it gets too cold and and fly south. And I've always said, I like to quote that John Denver song uh, where he says, coming home to a place he's never been before. And that's kind of the the response that I think of when, when, when like your blue-winged warbler or my Hudsonian godwit is, these youngsters are going home, and they've never been there before, and, and they got there on their own. And, of course, we've mentioned this before on the show. They don't get on a plane, train, or automobile like we do. They, they power their own flight, and it's quite remarkable. So, uh, Colin, would you like to add anything to that? There's a um, – I mean, I just think that the spectacle of migration is just one of the most amazing spectacles when you tune into it anywhere in the world. And – one of the best places to experience it is on the Gulf Coast. But yeah, I think that, you know, for me, one of the biggest impacts when I was in high school going down to High Island and seeing warblers coming in over the Gulf of Mexico during north winds and seeing them, you know, uh, um, trying to to navigate not just the weather, but the, the merlins and the uh, um, peregrines that were there along the coast hunting them. I mean, just... The way that kind of it's just it's just an amazing thing to 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 observe and realize what that what that small animal is doing. Yeah, and, and High Island, Scott, that that Cullen mentioned, and and that's where Cullen and I ran into each other back in the spring. For for those that don't know, it's 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 east of Galveston, on the Upper Texas coast, and it's not a true island in the sense of you got to get on a boat or cross a long bridge to an island. It's 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 inland just barely, but it's a salt dome, so it's a raised island of trees among a sea of marsh. And so that's what Colin was talking about, these songbirds that are flying over the Gulf, like your blue-winged warbler in April that you mentioned, Scott. They're northbound, and they cross the Gulf of Mexico after wintering in Latin America. And, and High Island are some of, sometimes the first set of woods that, that birds will see, and there's several other many other of these little woodlots, what we call migrant traps along the coast. Um, there And there's a lot in really juicy ones here in Louisiana, too. Um, right. I, I, yeah. I, I go down there uh, every every April and spend a good bit of time down there uh, watching that spectacle. And it's, Neat. It's, it's one of my favorite uh, things to do. I mean, it's, it's uh, and it's unbelievable to me that those young uh, young birds, having never done that, can know how to go. Yeah. Got to go. What to go, and then cross the Gulf of Mexico 
on Remarkable. their way. That, that's just kind of that's kind of like a miracle. Remarkable, isn't it? Yep. Okay, Scott. Well, I appreciate the call, and uh, thank you so much. Um, we've got another caller. We have Carol from San Antonio. Carol, you've got Cliff and Colin. Go ahead. Hi. I have a question. I know I kind of live on an edge of these tit mice or titmouse. Mm-hmm. And do I have black crested ones or tufted? Tit mice, or are they chickadees? I can't remember how they work. Yeah, in San Antonio, you've got black crested tit mice, and so black crested ones. Uh-huh. And okay. then you, you would go just a smidgen east of you, and you would start getting into tufted. Um, you'd get to like the oh, I'm trying to think, maybe the Mission River, getting getting closer to Victoria. And if you're north oh, okay. in, in Austin, we have uh, black crested titmice and you just go a little bit east towards Bastrop towards Lost Pines and you'll find tufted titmice so so you yeah you're the hill country and roughly I-35 is right on that that dividing line between those two species of titmice and mm. if you look at bird books that are 50 plus years old they were all just tufted titmouse so that that's a split that has happened in the last 50 years uh, less, oh, okay. less than so so if you find an old book that's you know 1932 it won't talk about the black crested titmouse it wasn't split out yet so okay. but they're, so they're are their calls the same their, their calls are a little different um and certainly they look different the names suggest mm-hmm. that that yours have that little black forehead um and the tufted right. has a gray forehead and they do interbreed um in in, mm. in parts of the range where, where they overlap there are some with kind of a tan buffy uh forehead cullen used to live in austin like i did and, and cullen you want to say anything else about titmice um in that line where they converge the two species no i um only that uh if people are interested you can actually look on ebird and explore observations of both and the hybrid zone the one other thing I would mention is that that, that line has moved. Um, and, and Cliff, you probably know more about this than I do, but um, if I recollect, um, tufted titmice used to extend further west, and uh, um, um, and that line has moved east a little bit over time. Yeah, hmm. yeah, there have been some changes, so very cool. Hmm. So, all right, Carol, thanks for the call very much. Um, we have another caller. We have Clyde from Nacogdoches. Clyde, you've got Cliff and Cullen. Go ahead. Well, uh, how are you today? I, I'm doing very well, sir. Thank you. How I'm are you? glad. I really love your show, and we have, you know, for a long time here. Uh, so what I'm calling about is I saw what I guess is a uh, some kind of a introduced or interloping dove in our out front of our house Uh a couple of days ago and the reason i say that is i'm familiar with morning doves and white wings having in years past hunted them when i could you know get out to do it and i know what they look like and this uh it's it's definitely a dove and not you know one of those doggone pigeons that we have right right no, there uh, there is a there is a new species new as of uh the mid to late 90s um, and I'm going to throw this one to Colin. I'm going to punt the ball to you, Colin. Why don't you tell him about our uh, new, newish dove that he's seeing? So, um, what I think you're referring to is the Eurasian colored dove, and this is a um, very much a new species um, that 
expanded, you know, it was introduced in Florida and it expanded. And I think in the, um, it took them about 15 years to go from Florida to California, uh, if I'm correct. And, and uh, um, it's just a, um, really kind of an amazing example of how an introduced um, species can really take over and, and become part of, part of the, the avian community. Mm-hmm. And so... Yep, Clyde. That was that was probably your bird. Thank you very much. Um, it's and by the way, it's a larger dove, very pale with a black ring around the collar, and that's the Eurasian collar dove that Cullen mentioned. Cullen, I like having you on because I can just sit back and sip on my ice water and let you field all the questions. How about that? You get to earn your keep. <laughs> hey, let's jump into uh, eBird. I want to make sure. Because we said we would talk about eBird, so can you explain eBird to our listeners how they can get started and maybe what value their data have, even if they collect eBird data in their backyard? Sure, eBird is a a platform that provides a toolkit for birders to keep track of your observations, and by doing so, it generates uh, um, um, an incredible wealth of data. They can be used for other birders as well as for research and conservation. And so, um, what I mean by that is that you know we have an application, uh, a, a mobile app that you can use to record what species you see when you're outside, and um, and then that you know goes to your account and you can see how many species you saw in any region. Um, but anybody can explore this data, so you can look at and see you know, what species are found in your area. And so in the in the case of that caller, if you wanna know what species of doves have been seen in your county or in your area, you can go on eBird and, and look that up. It's free, free access, right? It's free access, mm-hmm. eBird.org. Cool. So let's say some listeners wanna start contributing to eBird and they don't really get out to parks or refuges and they just, look at their backyard but what we can get we can gain a lot of knowledge from our backyard you know you guys at cornell have the backyard bird count every february so tell tell us you know encourage listeners to contribute to ebird and tell tell them why those data are important well it's um i think that there's there's a number of reasons why it's important but um one of the number one reasons why i would encourage people to participate in ebird is that it's a great way to learn the birds around you and um and starting in your backyard is a great place to start um, um backyard birders around the country uh, um for example with the great backyard bird count um you know help us track you know seasonal uh, um changes in in birds because if everybody's recording what they're seeing in their backyard, and then we can scale that out to a global understanding of where birds are dur- during different times of the year. Yeah, I think the most impressive is is with the eruptive species. Um, and, and, you you know, we've known about that forever, but you couldn't really get that real-time data like you can get with eBird. And, and, and actually looking over a decade or two look at the ups and downs thus the eruptiveness of things like pine siskin purple finch evening grosbeak etc red-breasted nuthatch so and so many others so yeah i think that there's there's definitely value to backyard birds you don't have to submit the the rare and the juicy species the, the everyday common stuff is 
is a value and, and important. Um, so while we're on uh, Cornell projects, let's we also mentioned Merlin. So can you tell us a little bit about this free cell phone app, Merlin, which by the way, for, for the record, I've mentioned it many times on this radio program because it is a tremendous asset and very helpful to any level of bird watcher. Uh, but tell us more about it and, and how people can learn birds around them using the Merlin app. So <clears throat> I guess uh, um, Merlin is um, our mobile app that um, helps you identify birds um, in the field. And, and, and it was really designed to, to work offline, even if you don't have access to the internet. And um, I guess to start, with Merlin is is a really powerful tool because it is based on eBird. Um, the eBird database has over one billion um, observations of birds from around the world, wow. and it's an incredibly rich data source. Not only that, but people have uploaded around forty million photos and over a million sound recordings. Wow. And so what Merlin does is we used uh, uh, um, different ways of of kind of leveraging these these uh, uh, um, these data sets to help you answer this basic question: is what is that bird I'm looking at? What is that dove that that I saw? Mm-hmm. Um, and and we do that by uh, um, help kind of filter out the possibilities and then giving you species accounts to identify what you saw. And so, um, in the case of uh, um, um, that caller, you know. That person could look up and see what doves you know are seen this week of the year mm-hmm. um, in my area. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And tell us real quickly about the song identifier that's very new with Merlin. It's not even what thirteen months old, roughly. This is a um, um, our um, the newest and kind of exciting thing to have come out. Um, with Merlin, and that is that you can open up the app. If you hear a bird singing, you don't know what that is, you can open up the app and just record it, and it will identify it based on the song, um, kind of like Shazam for birds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's it's very quick, too, like, like Shazam, which identifies music. Um, so very cool. Yeah, I love the Merlin app. I've mentioned it many times on this um, show, and I've told, I've told you this, uh, Colin, and I don't think I've mentioned on the radio show that that, that kind of app put, put me out of business. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just thinking before that app, and when I worked for Texas Parks and Wildlife, when people would, you know, hear something and maybe grab a recording or or had a picture, that they would send it to their state DNR like Texas Parks and Wildlife, and, and, and that they would find its way to the bird expert and that was me and I would identify it and my goodness Merlin came along and there's no need for an ornithologist at a state agency but no there still is I'm just kidding but it, it certainly well, helped it, it's helped because those I would go ahead I would, I would expect the opposite you know I mean our, our hope is that you know Merlin is going to help more people uh, um, get into birds and and have more questions about oh, yeah. birds and so I would expect Merlin to to uh, um, giving you job security. No, I, you're right. It, it, it's a gateway to get people interested, and then they can, you know, call their state DNR person for the next level. So, okay, you're listening to Bird Calls here on Red River Radio. 
I'm the host, Cliff Shackle. For tonight, we have our guest, Colin Hanks, from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. If you have a question for me or Colin, Colin or both of us, you have a few minutes left. The number here is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. Uh, Colin, I've got a couple more questions for you. We're, we've got a few minutes. Um, so, I, you know, we talked about travel and, and going abroad. So I've got a question. What, what are some places that are highest on your travel bucket list, both in the U.S. and abroad? Where, where do you want to go most that you've never been in the U.S. and elsewhere? Well, um, I'll start with the U.S. And um, I think one of the places that I really want to go to is northern Alaska. Mm. Um, and, and it's for the reason that you talked about earlier is, uh, um, you know, it is um, when you talked about, you know, breeding shorebirds mm -hmm. and, you know, how they, they fly so far and then they breed during a short period of time and then the parents take off and then the young are, you know, that is, that's a real spectacle. And to see that in the Arctic is is amazing. I went to Nome once and it, it really blew my mind. I, I was like, this is going to be neat, but I had no idea how cool it would be. And I really want to go back up to Barrow or, um, um, you know, which is in the northernmost point in Alaska. Mm. I think they recently changed the name to Uktiakvik, but um, mm. that would be, that would probably be one of the, the number one places I'd like to go in the United States. Good answer. And what month of the year would that be? June, I'm guessing. June. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, good. And then, how about abroad, out of the U.S.? What's highest on your bucket list? You know, I think that uh, um, one place that that I'm really excited about is, um, um, I guess, one place I would say is Indonesia. Oh. You know, where you have all this, you know, incredible diversity, uh -huh. um, um, and 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 and. You know, um, it's an incredibly diverse region, but the kind of island kind of biogeography seems like it would be super interesting, but I've never been there. So, yeah, yeah, that's a good pick. I'm a woodpecker guy, as you know, and, and the diversity of woodpeckers is really high in Indonesia. Uh, I think some forests can have eight to 12 species of woodpeckers in a single tract. Of course, they're Old growth forests are being cut down at an alarming rate, like just about anywhere, including here in our mm -hmm. states that we live in. So I don't like pointing the finger afar when we're doing it ourselves. But, yeah, it would be neat to see a great slaty woodpecker. That's, that's high on my list to see. And so maybe I'll hop into your suitcase when you go. <laughs> <laughs> Except but, uh, there's so many places. And, you know, for me, just anywhere – uh, um, any travel is interesting because the birds that you see wherever you go is different. And right. So, right. And and speaking of travel, and, and what we talked about earlier about careers um, in this field, and your buddies that have all that have gotten jobs, a lot of it involves really cool travels. So, tell us some about some of your travels abroad while you've been at Cornell Lab, because I know I've contacted you and you've you've written back oh i'm i'm headed to i don't remember if it was Suriname or where but tell us about some of the cool places you've been sent for work so i've primarily been working in latin america uh, um so i've done trips to colombia peru uh, um, ecuador 
Um, more recently, I've also been doing quite a bit of work in in, in Africa. Um, and this fall, I, I plan to go to Zimbabwe and Zambia. Um, but all of these trips really, um, I'm not, um, they're not sending me to, to these places to, to watch birds, although yeah. certainly I am. Um, but the real reason is, is the collaborations and partnerships that are so integral to, um, you know, eBird and uh, um, our, you know, citizen science in general. Um, you know, what we do in, in a lot of ways is provide the tools, but really it's about the community. And, um, and, and so much of what I do is working with and, and, and these collaborations with groups like BirdLife Partners, government agencies, um, and also just individuals that that are excited, care about birds, and are interested in 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 the birding community. Cool. So, in your travels abroad and around the country, what are some of the top conservation issues you've seen that that really need to be addressed to reverse declines in birds? Well, I think that um, for me, what I've seen is that so much of it just comes down to habitat and the loss of habitat in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that in areas is the intensification of agriculture um, and, and just not thinking about, you know, how that impacts um, birds and the habitat around them. Um, and, and so I think that this is, this is why it's really important to have a community uh, um, that cares about birds, that's paying attention, mm -hmm. and that it can also advocate for for opportunities uh, uh, um, um, for, for for the conservation of birds. Mm -hmm. Great. So, um, so Colin, tell us about your favorite bird and why. <laughs> you know, I have, I have to say that I don't actually have a favorite bird. Um. There's, you know, so so often my favorite bird is the bird that I'm looking at ah, at that moment in time. Yeah, good answer. Um, um, but you know, um, I have to give credit to to parrots in general. Mm. When I was very young, you know, parrots captured my imagination. Um, just their their intelligence, their gregariousness, um, and seeing them in the wild, you know, just really uh, um, had a huge effect on me. Just so raucous and vibrant, but also the conservation issues surrounding them, um, such as trapping and, and habitat loss, uh, um, that really kind of set a direction for, for my career in many yeah. ways. Awesome. Uh, looks like we have one last caller, um, John from Fishville. You've got Cliff and Cullen. And before you start, John, you got about 25 seconds. So make it quick, please, sir. Okay. This uh, all these uh, big antennas with a high frequency uh, microwave signals that confusing the migratory patterns of the birds that travel by that kind of signal. Colin, go for it. You know, I do not know about the impact of microwaves, but I do know that sometimes uh, um, these big towers with lights in certain climatic conditions. Uh, um, can be very confusing and 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 cause mortality and 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 uh, migratory birds. Right, yeah. Just the structure themselves is, is is deadly. And one of the top three things killing birds is them flying into tall structures, whether it's towers, guy wires, buildings, etc., windows of our houses, etc. So, big big problem for birds. Okay, Cullen, I want to thank you for coming on. If if 
you know, I can't believe that our hour is already up and we've got to let you go. And we thank you for visiting with us via Zoom. And uh, how about you come back in the future? Would you do that? I would be happy to. And and I hope uh, to see you again, you know, uh, um, like I saw you last time. Um, on Bolivar Flats or, yeah. or on the Gulf Coast looking at birds? Well, I'm, I'm only three-hour drive away. You're about a four-hour, five-hour flight away. So, yeah, I'll be there waiting for you. All right. <laughs> th- thanks so much, Colin. Appreciate you very much. All right. Thanks, Bill. So we're going to end with a conservation tip, as we do every episode. And tonight we're going to talk about autumn leaves. Each year, urban homeowners put millions of bags of leaves, grass clippings, and pine straw out at the curb to be hauled off by the city. Why? Because that because that's how you grew up doing it, or that's how the neighbors do it? Why not put those leaves, pine straw, and grass clippings to good use in a compost pile or, or spread generously in your wildscape or flower bed instead of stuffing them into a bag? Those mulching leaves, for instance, attract a lot of invertebrates that serve as food for many of our beloved birds. Lots of birds scratch in the leaf litter in search of a meal. A small compost pile is easy to start, requires minimal maintenance, and in less than a year will reduce down to a nutrient-rich pile of homemade organic fertilizer. Keep plastic bags off the curb and out of our landfills and give those leaves, grass clippings, pine needles, etc. a second life. In nature, no one hauls off the leaves, allowing them to, which allows them to provide a protective layer over the soil that decomposes and cycles nutrients back into the ground. It's also great habitat for a lot of birds and other wildlife. Do it for the birds. That concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackelford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio. I thank our in-studio, I thank our Zoom guest, Cullen Hanks, for discussing what he's doing at Cornell Lab. And and keep keep it going, Cornell, uh, Cornell and Cullen. You guys are doing a great job. Bird Calls has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation in North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kermit Poling and our phone bank of volunteers. Tonight's sound recording of a Mississippi kite was by John Middleton of xenocantu.org. The photo we used for that species on the Bird Calls page was snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. And remember, If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode next month, 6 p.m. on Tuesday, September 13th. Remember, do it for the birds.